So we're taking a break from Acts, but an exposition of Colossians fits in really well if we look at Judd's outline that he shows us every week. Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians during his imprisonment in Rome, which Judd's going to pick up again next week. So to understand the context of Colossians, the church at Colossae got its start during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus around 52 to 55 AD. At the time, Ephesus is with Paul, and he has likely shared some bad news that's happening within the church, that there was some false teaching that was starting to affect the church. So Paul writes this letter of encouragement to respond to the situation and to encourage the believers to mature in their new Christian faith. So Paul begins the letter to the Colossians as he does many of his other letters with um, the customary greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul had probably never met the Colossians. He had never been there. So he immediately makes sure that they understand who he is, his authority. And as we saw last week in Acts chapter 26, Paul describes the will of God. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So we see there it was God's will first to meet Paul on the road to Damascus, appointing him as an apostle. And as an apostle, he was going to witness events that were taking place and events that would take place soon after. So again, we see his claim to be an apostle and we see the will of God. So Paul then credits Timothy for being with him. We know that it is Paul writing the book. Timothy is with him. He starts the book of Colossians with we, and then he changes at the end of chapter 1 to referring to I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I am filling up with uh, what it is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then at the end of the book, at the last verse in 4, we see I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. And then in typical Paul fashion in verse 2, he encourages the Colossians by calling them saints and faithful brothers and by asking God to cover them with his grace and his peace. So God's grace is his love in action toward men who merited the opposite of love. Or it can be defined another way as the unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. And we'll look at a little more example of grace later on in the verses. So as we know, Paul wrote 13 letters. And of those 13 letters, after his greeting in 10 of them, he immediately encourages those he's greeting to by thanking God. So as we read through these verses, I want you guys to take note of, uh, of some words that I've highlighted. So first in Romans, he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that is given you in Christ Jesus. To the Ephesians, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. And to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. In 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't thank God for Timothy, but he thanks God for using himself in God's service. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. To Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And in our verses in Colossians, verses 3 and 4, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So there are a couple of common threads in these examples of giving thanks. First, these expressions of thanksgiving, as well as most all in throughout the rest of the Bible, a vertical thanksgiving to God. When we were taking the compass course, one week Judd came in and he challenged us to find an example in the Bible that is not a vertical thanksgiving. And we weren't able to, and I'm not sure if you've uh, found one since, but it's a fun study. Um, John Piper helps explain it this way. So the love that the Colossians have for Paul and for all the saints is not a love that is natural to the human heart. It happens in the spirit. It is, as Galatians 5.22 says, a fruit of the Spirit. This is why Paul thanks God in verse 3, that he has heard of their faith and love. If it had been the invention and product of the Colossians, Paul would have thanked the Colossians. But since faith and love are God's work, Paul thanks God. The second connection from those verses were the words that I've highlighted. In Paul's epistles, they all included fruit of the Spirit, as we just read in John Piper's quote there. Faith was mentioned seven times, love was mentioned four times, and joy was mentioned twice. So verse 3 reminded me of the encouragement that I felt from many of you this week from text messages, um, just letting me know that you were praying for me for this uh, sermon that I was going to lead. And I imagine that that's how the Colossians felt when they read Paul's letter, that he was praying for them, he was encouraging them. So Paul begins verse 5 by reminding the Colossians that their faith and love are based on hope, specifically because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Colossians' hope and understanding of a future benefit causes love in the present. This is an important distinction. We aren't to love our brothers and sisters in Christ for personal gain or for earthly reasons, as that love can be rocked by disappointment. 
We are to love one another because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this are all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now loving one another, this wasn't a new idea. It wasn't a new commandment just as Jesus had loved us is the point because what Jesus was about to demonstrate was his love for us was worth laying his life down for. So Paul acknowledges that this isn't news to the Colossians and he does a little name dropping to help strengthen his plea to them. Verse five of this, at the end of verse five, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit, increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So at the, ch at the time the church was planted, the gospel was spreading. It was spreading, as he said, throughout the world. It started in Jerusalem and it was extending into Syria, the area referred to as Asia Minor, Greece, Italy. It was probably already in Egypt, North Africa, and Persia. And it's also here that we learn about the Colossian named Epaphras. So it's believed that he traveled to Ephesus and he responded to Paul's proclamation of the gospel. As a new believer, he then returned home, began sharing the good news of Christ, which resulted in the birth of this Colossian church. And so what we just read in verses six and seven is the confirmation or the testimony of Epaphras' conversion, as well as the conversion of many of the uh, Colossians. Judd's application last week was that our testimony of our conversion is important, but we need to be prepared to give it at any moment. So he said last week, you have a story to share. Present it truthfully gracefully and boldly and leave the results up to God. Judd also mentioned some examples of uh, some testimonies that, that we have in this church. He mentioned himself being in deep hell in Dallas and uh, shaking his fist at God and in turn coming to know and accept Christ as his Lord and Savior. He mentioned somebody coming to Christ by being uh, thrown from a Jeep and he has mentioned a few times somebody coming to Christ while driving in reverse. So this is my opportunity to expound on that. So I moved to uh, Dallas in 1987 and I uh, graduated high school, ended up moving to Texas or going to Texas Tech in beautiful Lubbock, Texas. And as a freshman in the dorms, uh, my next door neighbor through God's sovereignty was a guy named Rodney Ring. And he was a youth pastor at a local church in Lubbock. And it's fun seeing how God placed him in my life when he did. Now we hung out in different circles. Uh, first couple of years in college, I was more interested in the social aspect than the studious aspect. But there was a time when Rodney called a few of us, and he needed some help because his truck had broken down. And the only way that he could drive was in reverse. 
as none of us had any money, we couldn't afford a tow truck, we figured, okay, well, we can drive. It still, it still runs, it just runs backwards. So we got a few of us together. We had our lead car. We had Rodney and I in the truck in between and a tail car following. And we figured, well, let's just do this in the middle of the night when the roads are as, as clear as possible. So driving in reverse on main roads in Lubbock, you're not going very fast. So we had some time to share and we were chatting. And as the God-loving man that he was, he asked me, how you doing? Now, as the open, honest, blunt Englishman that I am, that my wife calls, refers to as pompous, I opened up my heart to him that night. I, I told him, I'm doing terrible in school. I'm doing terrible in relationships. I just feel lost. And he shared the gospel with me. And I just felt that tug, that that was what my life was missing. And so he shared the gospel. I accepted Christ, met my wife a year later, and uh, obviously was the best decision I ever made to follow our Lord Jesus. Our testimonies are important. And as Judd said, be ready. Be ready to give yours. So verse 9 begins a new paragraph, and be, Paul begins it with, and so. So Paul is saying, because of your faith in Christ Jesus, and because of your love for the saints, in verse 4, and because you are bearing fruit increasing, in verse 6, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's prayers are specific. If we were to read on in Colossians, we would learn about the dangerous teaching that's uh, affecting the church. So Paul is praying for their spiritual wisdom. This is the wisdom from God and understanding and for their growth toward Christian maturity to be able to combat this false teaching. So why is he praying this for them? Because God's wisdom and understanding will lead to changed lives, enabling them in verse 10 to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So our walk is how we conduct ourselves or how we behave. And although we're fully justified upon salvation, we are not fully sanctified and our actions can please or displease God. To help understand the difference, justification is an instantaneous occurrence with the result being eternal life. It's based completely and solely upon Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and is received by faith alone. No works are necessary to obtain justification, otherwise it's not a gift. Therefore, we are fully justified by faith. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a process of being set apart for God's work and being conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctification is not instantaneous because it's not the work of God alone. The justified person is actively involved in submitting to God's will, resisting sin, seeking holiness, and working to be more godly. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are here this morning and have not been justified by faith, 
by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to talk to somebody, talk to myself, talk to Judd, talk to one of the elders, but it's incredibly important. So again, in order to recognize and combat the false teachings and to walk in a manner worthy, Paul continues in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you in the to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So this divine strength enables us to persevere through trials to know the joy of the Lord. It's the strength that helps explain what James means when he tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And joy should cause us to give thanks to the one in whom we find true joy. When I was taking the Compass course a few years ago, I, as well as the guys who are currently taking it, have to make the decision to teach Sunday school or preach from the pulpit. I thought, let's take the easy way out. Let's teach Sunday school. And then Judd asked me, okay, I'm going to teach three weeks in a row. Needless to say, it was a blessing. Um, I picked the topic of joy. It was something that I really wanted to understand more about. What is God wanting us to experience? What is joy supposed to look like from a biblical standpoint? And I came across John MacArthur's explanation, which helped me. Joy is a deep down sense of well-being that bides in the heart of the person who knows all is well between himself or herself and the Lord. It is not an experience that comes from favorable circumstances or even a human emotion that is divinely stimulated. It is God's gift to believers. Joy not only does not come from favorable circumstances, but is sometimes greatest when circumstances are most painful and severe. Consider that last sentence. Joy does not, joy not only does not come from favorable circumstances, but is sometimes greatest when circumstances are most painful and severe. For me, the Thanksgiving holiday will never be quite the same, and a lot more so for Mike and Juanita Brightsmith. It was two years ago on Thanksgiving Day that I received the call from Mike that their baby girl, Naomi, was being rushed to Denver. Judd and I hopped in the up in the truck, we drove down to Denver immediately and we were with Mike and Juanita as Naomi left and went home to be with our Lord and Savior in heaven. This was the fourth child in almost as many years that the Lord had taken home from this small church. And once again, we were walking alongside a family during one of the most difficult trials of their lives. But through all of that, what I found that was amazing to me was the endurance and the patience that I saw in Mike. You see, he had come to know the Lord six weeks prior to that event. Six weeks. And what I witnessed, now he was in deep, deep pain and sorrow, but I witnessed a joy and a peace that could only be found in the Lord. 
This joy in verse 11 is followed immediately by giving thanks in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. <clears throat> Notice, we can't qualify ourselves, but it is God who qualifies us. Qualifying is something that we typically do in our strength. I follow uh, a lot of soccer, and there's a lot of qualification, whether it be England or the US, mainly England, in the World Cup, <laughs> or in the Euros, which are currently happening. I think about qualification. My dad ran a lot of marathons, and he would have to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And we read in the Bible in Titus, that the qualifications for an elder, and most of those qualifications are in our strength. There's one or two that aren't, but most of them are in our, in our power. So it was Epaphras who convinced, it wasn't Epaphras, let me clarify, it wasn't Epaphras that convinced the Colossians to believe, but it was God's doing, qualifying them by his grace. He brought us into the light out of darkness in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, by his grace, he is the one doing the work. He has qualified us. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. And in verse 14, he has forgiven us. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. As we can see, we should have an attitude of gratitude. One that Jonathan Edwards refers to as gracious gratitude. So Jonathan Edwards was an 18th century Protestant theologian here in America. And in one of his most well-known works, Religious Affections, he addresses what he refers to as natural gratitude versus gracious gratitude. Natural gratitude versus gracious gratitude. Natural gratitude is something that anyone is capable of, while gracious gratitude is the quality of the believer. Natural gratitude starts with the stuff. Gracious gratitude starts with who God is and recognizes the attributes of God and being grateful to God regardless of favors or enjoyments. Natural gratitude says thanks when things are going well, but it fails to find any reason for thankfulness when the circumstances of life overtake us. And gracious gratitude triumphs and glorifies God even when things aren't the way we would choose them to be. Now, both believers and unbelievers can obviously be thankful people. Edwards said that by virtue of existence, natural gratitude is possible and observable. But natural gratitude starts with the stuff, being thankful for our health, our families, that we get to live here in the beautiful Vale Valley, for our possessions, for our jobs, thankful that Tony Romo is back off injured reserve this week. It's natural to be thankful for these things, but we have to be careful. Because what happens when things aren't going well? 
What happens when we're sick, like my wife and my youngest son are today? What happens when we lose family members, like some of our church families have? What happens if we have to leave this beautiful valley, like the Fosters, the Ritmillers, the Hansons and Dubays? And if our possessions are stolen, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6:19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What if we lose our job like Matt, Matt Hansen did years back, hours after leading a men's study about the sovereignty of God? What if Tony Romo is hurt again and can't turn our season around? When circumstances of life overtake us, unbelievers will express anger, bitterness, and complaining. Now, those are all characteristics of the unbeliever, although we as believers can fall into those expressing anger, being bitter, complaining. But those go against everything the Bible tells us. So whether it's a good day or a bad day, whether it's I am employed or unemployed, whether it is raining or sunny, whether I have cancer or I'm cancer-free, gracious gratitude will triumph over all these things and will glorify God. Gracious gratitude is one of the distinguishing marks of a believer and one of the real marks of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And it is only by grace that genuine, gracious gratitude can be discovered. So this Thanksgiving, as we gather to celebrate with our traditions, I challenge all of us to express this gracious gratitude that we've read about. This gracious gratitude to God for what he has done for us qualifying us, for delivering us, for transferring us, and most of all, for forgiving us. And thankful for the hope that is laid up in heaven. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite pastors to listen to because he's from Scotland, uh, but he lives in Cleveland, Ohio. He said it best. And you'll see this application up above. And these are things that we are to do. Overflowing gratitude. It will turn our gaze to God and away from ourselves and our circumstances. Overflowing gratitude will defend against the devil's insinuation to despair and distrust. Overflowing gratitude it will protect from pride. It will eradicate from our vocabulary this phrase, I don't or I deserve more than this. And it will eradicate from our vocabulary this phrase, I don't deserve this. And lastly, overflowing gratitude, it allows us to rest. Resting in the realization that God's loving purpose is being worked out in experiences that are not only pleasant, and encouraging, but also in the experiences that are unsettling and painful. So in closing, Beg also adds, expressions of gratitude for all that is pleasurable. It holds no surprise, it cuts no ice. It is only by grace 
that we learn to overflow with thankfulness in all circumstances.